Well, it's good to see everybody here today on this holiday weekend. Not much of a holiday, I suppose. But it's a, it's a weekend of impermanence, remembering how easy it is to lose a life. And losing a life for, uh, for the good of the country. Freedom, security, a lot of concepts uh, this weekend. But I'm going to talk about how to have a good life. I talked about it Wednesday, and this will be like part two of my how to have a good life talk. So I was invited to a conference. They found us on the internet. And they emailed us asking if anybody would be interested in speaking about the meaning of life. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And I said, we don't really know what it is, but we have a lot of opinions. And she said, opinions are a good thing. So this was um, a conference, as best I can tell. I'm still unclear who these people are, but it's a conference of, of people who dealt with musical education, and they were counselors and advisors in musical schools and universities. And they would give their students an idea of how to have a good life as a musician or someone in the music business. And after listening to other presenters, it's really a tough business to have a good life in. They don't seem to work as much as they'd like to, and there seems to be a whole lot of competition, and there's, there's streaming and CDs and all sorts of ways not to make money, and I'm going, wow. So what was I going to tell them? I said to myself, and Wednesday was my day to speak, and I hard to get to sleep that night. Tuesday night was a tough one because I was waiting for the inspiration. You know how sometimes before you do something, you get lucky and you're inspired by something that you think about or something that you saw in a different way, something that was unique. And so 12.30 at night, I had my inspiration. And then I wrestled with the inspiration for another hour, so I got to sleep about 1.30. But I thank the universe for the inspiration because I was stuck. How do you tell somebody how to have a good life? And I came up with, why, of course, it's karma. What else could it be? So I went in and spoke to a lot of people who didn't know what karma was and explained to them in the way I explain karma um, how someone could have a good life and almost be in charge of it. The problem is you really can't be in charge of anything because there's so many conditions necessary for anything to happen, and you're simply one of those conditions. But karma is a good place to start. Now, as every Buddhist philosopher will say, well, you know, good is a difficult concept. Because what's good for me may not be good for you. It's arbitrary. And there's the greater good, and there's the lesser good, and there's the personal good, and there's the collective good. So what kind of good do you want? Well, as a Buddhist, I suppose good means we suffer less. That's good. 
Do we want a lot of stuff? Sometimes we want a lot of stuff. Do we want less stuff? Yeah, sometimes we want that too. There was a book in the 70s called Voluntary Simplicity by Dwayne Elgin, and he talked about a lot of professional people who decided to downsize their life and go from lawyer to carpenter just so they could be more fulfilled. And, and that got me to thinking about the idea of fulfillment and success. Because in the loving kindness reflection, what we have is oftentimes the word success. May I be successful. And I changed it to may I be fulfilled. Because for me, fulfillment's on the inside and success is on the outside. And when I wear my torn blue jeans and t-shirt, I do not look successful. But I am fulfilled. And the idea of striving for fulfillment is one that I like because it's an internal journey. And so at some point, the journey goes from the outside to the inside if we're lucky. Sometimes we never get there, but a lot of us do. So what can we do as far as karma is concerned to have a good life once we've decided what good is to us? As you all know, karma, there's three aspects of karma. There's thinking karma, speech karma, action karma. And karma is simply doing something, thinking something, saying something, acting something, doing something. And, and so what am I going to do and what's it going to be based on? Well, in Buddhism, we could have it based on the three poisons, we want to avoid those. So we could say, okay, I don't want to do anything that will look like greed or hatred or delusion. So I don't want those thoughts, and I don't want that speech, and I don't want that action. And there's a lot of hate speech going on now. Fascinating, you know, not good karma. There's a lot of action going on that's, that's filled with hatred, anger, and delusion. Not so good. You know? And then, of course, thinking, we don't know what somebody's thinking until it turns into speech karma or action karma. But I'm often surprised at what people think. And when people say, wouldn't it be nice to read somebody's mind? I go, absolutely not. <laughs> you know? Last thing I want to do. <laughs> So we can start right away with speech and action, and it's fairly easy because it deals with the five precepts. Not to kill, not to steal, no sexual misconduct, not to lie, not to consume intoxicants. Those have something to do with what we say and what we do. And if we understand those precepts and take them, or even if we don't take them but simply practice them, we'll find that it tends to modify what we say and what we do in a skillful way, and we should suffer less, and those around us should suffer less as well. That's the theory. It doesn't always work. Sometimes, you know, you can say really skillful things, and nobody hears it. They're not, not able to hear what you're saying because they don't know what the context is. And, of course, the context is your life. And sometimes even we don't know what the context of our life is. So we struggle with trying to find the right thing to say and the right thing to do to reduce suffering in the world. 
Now, I find myself, I'm having a more difficult time of it lately because I think I'm getting older and I don't know if I radiate in the same way I did when I was 20. There's this sort of mask that happens when you get old and you're just sort of like relaxed and you're not really smiling or frowning. You're just sort of like this indifference. You know, but you're listening. You know what everybody is saying. You're just not responding. You know, it's like getting Botox, except it's age. <laughs> you know. So I find when I go into a business that I want to do business with, I need to sort of jumpstart my enthusiasm. You know, hi, how are you? Good to be here. You know, and then the people, the clerks, the customers relate to me in a better way. But if I just go in with the thought in mind, you know, they said it was going to get better. It never gets better. You only get used to it. Well, that thought doesn't go very far. So I just got to be excited about life. And after a few decades, it's sort of tough. Because you know what's just around the corner. Your demise. And should you be excited about that? Well, in some cases, absolutely. You'll never have to drive the 405 again. (laughs) That's something to be excited about. But in other cases, you may have some work that needs to be finished and you're not really ready to go yet. And you hope you have a couple more years so you can get all the stuff done. And then have this peaceful transition, which is rare but possible. So as I practice the precepts, I understand that, yes, I need to practice the precepts, but I also need to engage the world in a very special way in order for the world to engage me. I can't simply be indifferent because the world will respond So, I'm speaking to these people at this conference, and I'm talking about karma, and somebody asks this question. What about waiting? I go, excuse me? What about waiting? You know, these students have gone to school, and they've got all these new skills, and they want to go out and make a lot of money and have a successful career. So they get out of school, and now they have to wait. How are they supposed to wait? I'm going, wow, that is like the best question. And I have no answer. And so I was able to reflect on it the past couple days and and look at waiting. Back in the 70s, there was a book, maybe the 60s, Stranger in a Strange Land, Robert Heinlein. And Michael Valentine Smith at one point said, when waiting is filled. And I'm going, whoa, what does that mean? And then in the 70s, I asked myself the question, and finally I'm starting to figure it out, when waiting is filled. So imagine an hourglass that needs to be filled, and so the sand is going in, and and we wait for the sand to go in. But how do you wait skillfully for the hourglass to fill up and have waiting filled? That's the deal. Well, that's what we did today before I started the talk, is we practiced waiting. We meditated. It's a really high-level waiting. And what we do is we take a position, you know, and we find a stable position. And then we put our mind on the object of meditation, something we can reflect on or, or concentrate on 
and bury ourselves into it. And in waiting, what we want to do ultimately is kill past and future. Because past and future can sort of drag on for like ever. And we want to find ourselves in that present moment where there's no time. And if there's no time, it's much easier to wait than if there is time ticking away. And I find when I focus on my object of meditation, which is generally the sensation of breath, I'm able to kill time pretty well. I can't tell if it's long or short. It's just sort of there. And then the idea for me is to relax my body and have an alert mind. And that's difficult to put together because generally speaking, if we have an alert mind, we're sort of tense a little bit and ready for something to happen. And if we have a relaxed body and a relaxed mind, then oftentimes sleep becomes our best friend. So how can you have this alert mind and relaxed body in a stable position and kill time and not be distracted by emotional pain and physical pain. Because, man, that stuff comes up all the time in the first 10 or 20 years of your meditation practice. (laughs) And and for me, what I tried to do, I I had like two ways of looking at this pain that comes up in the present moment as I'm practicing my waiting. One was I would become the pain, you see? And if I became the pain, then there wouldn't be any separation of the observer and the pain, there would simply be just really strong sensation, and it would be me, and then it wouldn't be as much of a problem. But if pain is separate from me, like my knee hurts, then I can really have a story applied to that painful knee and be separate from it and be observer and be the victim of the pain. Well, it never worked for me. I could never become the pain good enough not to feel the pain. So the other way I would work on it was I would be so involved in my object of meditation that nothing else would exist. So you just get really deep in the sensation of breath and you start to sometimes analyze it or start simply to become sensation. And, some, and sensation is always happening now. And, and I could anesthetize my emotions and my body through strong and deep levels of focus. Okay, very good. So that seemed to work fine for a long time. But even that, if you're on retreat, you might be able to do it an hour or two, but you get on retreat and you get a weekend or a week and you just, you know, it's, there's only so much concentration you can do. There's only so much denial of what's going on that you can do. And then it just happens. There you are in the midst of all this pain and suffering and it's terrible and why did Goenka come up with this? And you just start asking all these things. You know. So then I, I went on to the next level. So one was trying to be the pain. One was trying to be the object of meditation. And then one was just trying to be. And that's what I went to. I said, okay, I'm just going just gonna to be with whatever's happening. And I'm not going to identify with it. I'm simply going to let it happen through me and because of me. And there it was. And that seemed to work for a much longer period of time, that I could just simply sit, and I'd have all these sensations arising, existing, and passing away. 
And I was sitting long enough where they would actually pass away, which was a good thing. So now I'm getting into this sort of waiting thing, and I'm going to try it out, you know. So I go into, like, you know, a Vons and wait in line. Piece of cake. Five minutes, no problem at all, you know. But in 2015, I was going to Kentucky, to Gethsemane, to be part of a conference, to give a presentation. And I was leaving L.A. at 12.05 at night, taking the red eye, and I was going to, you know, go into, like, I guess St. Louis and then someplace else and finally a small thing to Kentucky and da, da, da. So I prepared. I'm preparing to wait. I've got to wait like five or six hours from point A to point B to my destination. And about 12.03, I'm at the gate, and I see the plane pulling back, leaving all of us behind. They were moving the plane to another gate, and they weren't giving us another plane. And I'm going, man, what's happening here? See, I'm never going to fly again, but now I have a reason. You know, so no other plane appeared until about, like, 4 o'clock in the morning. And I had a connection to make, and I'm thinking, am I going to make the connection? And I'm exhausted, and I get into the plane, and the seats are just crammed, and my knees hurt, and my back hurts, and everybody's agitated, and the air isn't very good. And I can't sleep, and I can't be awake, and da-da-da-da. And then we get to the airport. It was Chicago, Chicago airport. That was going to be my, I was going to transfer to the next plane. Made it late. I was like 10 minutes late. The plane left. Uh, there I am now. For like eight, nine hours. I'm thinking, wow. And I didn't think this is the perfect chance to practice. I'm thinking, why me? I got places to be. I got things to do. I just can't be waiting around. And I just saw my mind creating this victim. And my shoulders started to bend, and I had this sort of forlorn look on my face. And I just didn't feel that life was worth being so excited about anymore in the airport with all the other people. And you know what I noticed? They all look at screens now. They don't look at anything except a screen. So for hours they were looking at a screen, and I was looking at them looking at their screens. (laughs) And I had this just like, terrible feeling. And then we finally made it to wherever we were going to go, in Kentucky. I forget this, this city. And then we had to do a freeway. So we're in this van with the other people who are going to be in part of the conference. And the freeway is busier than I've ever seen a freeway be with all these trucks. And I had just been in the process of traveling for like now, going on 24 hours you know, to get to a place I could have driven to in less time. And now I've got the trucks and the exhaust. And I just couldn't believe it. I finally get to my little room on my little bed. And, of course, you can't sleep because you're aggravated and all that kind of... So I found after all those years of practicing to wait, I didn't do it. And the reason I think I didn't do it is because I didn't say to myself, this is my chance to practice. I didn't look at it in that way. My experience was not one of practice. It felt more like masochism. And I just didn't like it. So now I go into the store, my chance to practice. I go on the freeway, 
my chance to practice. If I ever take a plane again, which I hope I don't, my chance to practice. I'm looking at life much more as a chance to practice than to live. Until my practice turns into performance, which is what every good musician does. They practice for years and years and years to have a 20-minute performance. And in that 20-minute performance, there's no one performing. There is simply activity. Cool. I couldn't just be activity in the airport. I couldn't be someone who was practicing. I was someone who was suffering. And I just looked at the Buddha and said, you're so right. Life is unsatisfactory. It's just every chance I get when I'm not skillful, it validates that. So, karma, thinking, speaking, and acting. Speaking and acting happening through the five precepts. Thinking happening through our meditation practice. Not only do we practice to change the way we think, ultimately, I think, the Buddhist practice is designed to change the way we experience the world. That's the whole outcome. All the stuff that we do, all the books we read and all the times we practice and all the people we hang out with and all this other stuff that goes into being a Buddhist is simply designed to change the way we experience the world. It never gets better. We just get used to it. And this practice allows us to simply get used to it and not have to make it any worse than it is, but ultimately see the perfection in every moment. So if you're sitting alone someplace, maybe in a cafe having a cup of coffee, you know, you look around and you say to yourself, man, this is just the way it's supposed to be. Or you're on the freeway and you're going to be late and you say to yourself, man, this is just the way it's supposed to be. I can see it now. No matter how hard I train, try to change the way it is, I can only change myself and the way I respond to it and the way I relate to it and the way I experience it. So there's that old saying, when I was young, I tried to change the world. When I got old, I tried to change myself. And some of us are lucky enough to be able to do that. I am still a work in progress. And it's even more frustrating when it's what you do and you still fail. But being human is such a magical position to be in because we are, it becomes self-evident. We're not who we think we are. In all these situations, we could be more than or we could be less than. And, and so it's an opportunity to see how well your practice is going. You know, it's like the old story of somebody who was in the Himalayas and they had a three-year retreat in a cave and they finally over and they go back into the city and someone touches them by mistake and they get angry because they were, their space was violated. After three years in the cave, they still didn't get it yet. It's still not working. So I see after 30 years of practice, you know what? I'm just coming out of the cave. And I'm trying to figure out how to deal with all this stuff that I have no control over. How do you do it? How do you make sense of it? 
What is the meaning of life? Wow. So I was thinking about that. What is the meaning of life? What is it to me? And what is the purpose of life, if life has a purpose? So I'm thinking, well, the first thing we need to do is we need to do something. Whatever it is, whether it, you know, simply be watching TV, taking out the trash, making a million dollars, riding your bicycle, driving, you need to do something. And that doing tends to hold the purpose of your life encased in it. It might not be obvious at first, but it's there. So whatever we're doing at that moment, that seems to be the purpose of our life. You know, and, and we can change the purpose of our life. It often changes all by itself. We just follow it as we go through life. But then the meaning. What, where does the meaning come from, I said to myself. And it seems to me that we have the purpose of life in what we do, and the meaning comes when we try to understand what we're doing. Why am I doing this? I could be doing a hundred different things. Why is this my purpose? You know? And then, how do I understand it? How do I make sense of it? And somebody once said, meaning is anything you want to give it. If you give your work meaning, it's what you think it is. Somebody else might have a different meaning for your work and your, and your purpose. But if it's simply what we do and how we understand what we're doing, that's going to evolve as the depth of our insight increases through the five precepts and our meditation practice. And at some point, if you're following the Zen tradition, you're going to come to that place in the road where you don't know anything. And then they're going to say, what's the meaning of life? Don't know. What's the purpose of life? Don't know. Why do you do anything? Don't know. That's the place with the great wisdom. See, that's the place. At some point, maybe we don't have to know in order to do it. At some point, maybe the meaning becomes meaningless. And, and don't know is the appropriate response to a life. Why is my life this way? Don't know. I don't anticipate it getting any better or worse. I don't anticipate it having any more meaning or less meaning. It's what I do. I get up in the morning, I breathe, I have breakfast take a shower, pet the cats, what I do doesn't mean anything. But see, as humans, meaning becomes very important because our words define our reality. So I'm oftentimes looking up words to understand what they mean. And then I can apply that to my life and the world around me. And, and, and then I see, was it Thomas Jefferson... Somebody had a great quote that I posted that said, you know, about people that can't spell. It's a poor mind that can't think of another way to spell a word. You know? <laughs> Something like that. I come up with these incredible ways of spelling words. So at what point do we stop going after the meaning and we just end up doing and I think that's what Buddhism is encouraging me to do, is they've given me all these models, wonderful paradigms, complicated. And, and they're all strung together. There's a thread that runs through all of them. And then you get it, and then you're able to talk about it. But is that it? And I'm thinking to myself, no, 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 that's not it. That's, that's the menu, not the meal. 
That's the map, not the terrain. I want, I want the meal. So how do I go after that? And it seems to me the only way we can really get the meal is simply to experience it before it becomes a model or a menu. We have that direct experience. And our meditation practice can put us in the situation necessary for that experience to happen. It will create conditions. And so I've come to the conclusion that my life is just a bunch of conditions that I tend to create or other people create or situations create. And then when the right conditions are there, something happens. Cool. But that only happens once. Always once. Can't happen again because every time new conditions are necessary. And that's really a bummer. I would like linear growth more than anything else in my meditation practice. Just to get better and better and better and better. It never goes that way. Sometimes it's good, sometimes not so good. And I'm thinking, wow, after all these years, it should always be good. Yeah, but it's not. Because life's not always that way. Life is conditional. And we're one of the conditions. So I keep coming to this place of acceptance. Wow, and it's really hard. And I say to myself, oh well. Oh well. (laughs) After all the work, you know, and pre-thought I put into all this stuff, and it doesn't go the way I think it's going to go, I just have to go, oh well. You know? But out of all that stuff comes gratitude. You wouldn't think anybody would have gratitude looking at somebody's life. Because there's more downs and ups sometimes, you know, and you can be grateful for that. And, and it, it hit me in the face the other day. I'm thinking, well, what am I grateful for? You know, and I, I had to pause. I don't know. I don't know. Am I grateful to be able to pay taxes, car insurance, registration? You know, I've got Medicare now, but that costs me some money each month. What am I grateful for? My feet hurt. Sometimes I can't think about a certain word. I I lose it. I keep dropping things all the time. They just fall. I'm thinking I'm I'm taking after the cats now. You know, they just bang. Or I just sweep my hand and knock something off the table. And I'm going, how could I do that? What am I grateful for? And then there it was. I stood in front of the Buddha and I said, Buddha, what am I grateful for? And we have a nice Buddha in our meditation center. And he doesn't say much, but he looks at you, you know. <laughs> so he was looking at me, and I figured it out. I said, you know what I'm grateful for? I'm grateful that I have something to do and a place to live. And that is a real gift. And I wouldn't have that in the way I do without the Buddha, without his teachings and my ordination. And with that little sense of gratitude, I go back into the world, ready to fight and try to accept things in their perfection, even though I can't see the perfection. And sometimes I succeed, and sometimes I don't. And I say, oh, well, (laughs) maybe next time.